Hey everybody, Glenn here. I need to let you know about a change in the way that we are distributing the bi-monthly ballots that determine what we cover on the show. For technical reasons that I will not bore you with, we are not going to be sending those directly to your email anymore. Instead, what we're going to do is send them to your Patreon message inbox. And the reason that I'm here saying this to you on the air before the show is that we know that people don't always see those messages. They just, uh, they don't get forwarded to your email or, or give you some other kind of notification when you log into Patreon or something like that. And so as you are hearing this message, you have the ballot in your Patreon message inbox. And if you did not get that forwarded to your real email, which is way more convenient, obviously, you'll have to go to Patreon to get it. But it is there for you now if you are a Patreon supporter at the Archon level or up. And if you aren't a Patreon supporter at the Archon level or up, now's a really great time to do that. There's some awesome stuff on this ballot, including the next chapter in The Gunslinger by Stephen King. There's a Conan story from Robert E. Howard. There's Poe. There's George R. R. Martin. And they can't all make it onto the show. It, it, it's up to you which of those we do. So if you aren't already with us, please join us. Do it now. But all right, let's get on with the show. Hello, and welcome back to Elder Sign, a weird fiction podcast by Clay Temple Media. I'm Glenn McDorman. And I'm Brandon Buddha. In this episode, we'll be talking about The Rose Garden by M.R. James. The story was published in 1911. The story was chosen by our patrons, and I want to say <laughs> finally chosen by our patrons. It's been on the ballot for a long time, and hilariously, almost every ballot it's been on, it has come in, uh, just it has missed making it past the post by one vote, two votes, maybe three votes sometimes. Uh, whether we took three stories, four stories, five stories, didn't matter. This was always the one that just <laughs> missed it, but finally, it made it past the post. Uh, before we get into it, though, too, I also want to say that uh, one of the things that happened uh, when we were on our break, our holiday break at the end of 2020, is that uh, we hit our Patreon goal of doing an extra Christmas episode on Patreon every year. And so we did another MR James story for that. Uh, it was the story of a disappearance and an appearance. Uh, that was our, our second Christmas episode on Patreon to go along with our, our annual Connie Willis SF Christmas story as well. We had a blast doing that. Yeah, I'm really excited about this. And I'm really grateful to our patrons who supported us, helped us hit this goal and allowed us to cover, you know, the traditional British ghost story uh, for Christmas <laughs> this year, along with the really delightful uh, Connie Willis stories. Yeah. So if that's something you're interested in, please uh, consider joining us on Patreon to, to check that out. But uh, let's turn our attention here to the Rose Garden. So this is not one of James's best regarded stories. And in, in fact, it's often ranked pretty low by James fans, which is maybe also why it took so long to make it past the post in the, the voting. <laughs> it is a story that I would describe as a bit obtuse. And, uh, you know, we're going to see the shocking ending here, the, you know, the twist ending. It relies a bit too much on some knowledge that I think for most of us now is pretty esoteric. But you know, even with that being the case, I still love James's cadence. I love his accents. I love just, you know, generically his depiction of country life. So this still was a pleasure to read. It really was a pleasure to read, even though the story, as you put it, is maybe uh, obtuse and, and esoteric. <laughs> right. Well, uh, let's get a dose of obtuse and esoteric. Brandon, uh, you're doing the recap today. So, uh, so have at it. The Rose Garden opens much in the way that Pride and Prejudice does, with an older married couple talking 
past one another about something that interests the wife more than the husband. And in this case, uh, the couple name is the Anstruthers. It's George and Mary. They're eating breakfast and talking about their day. Mary wants to get a bunch of house projects done, including the planting of a rose garden in a place where no rose garden really should be planted uh, in this spot on the couple's land. George just wants to play golf. And Mary tells George that while she understands that he wants to play golf, if he doesn't lend her a hand buying all the stuff she needs to get for her stall at the bazaar you know, today, if he doesn't help her today, it's going to cost them more money because she's going to have to send away for the items and it's just going to be an added expense for the household. George doesn't want to spend the money, so he agrees to help. I mean, this is kind of great characterization through dialogue. Mary knows exactly what to say to get George to do what she wants. <laughs> and so George asks Mary what she's going to do with her day while he's you know, shopping on her behalf. And she tells him that she needs to lay out the new rose garden. But what that really means is that George has to talk to the groundskeeper, Collins, and make sure Collins does all the prep work on the land that she has chosen uh, to plant the roses on. The place that Mary has chosen, as we've kind of hinted at, is not the most optimal site for a rose garden. And, and this is George's thinking about the situation. He thinks it doesn't get enough light. And there's also maybe an old summer house on the land or an old summer house used to be there. And Collins should be able to get everything done before lunch. And then after lunch, Mary can work on her sketch of the nearby church that's pretty close to where the rose garden will be planted. And this is Mary's plan, and George is going to communicate this to Collins. And if George gets all of his work done today, then Mary will allow him to go golfing after lunch while she sketches. And he thinks (laughs) that's a capital idea. But what Mary means to say is that, uh, yes, uh, you could play golf after lunch, or you could do something really productive with your day and call on the bishop. But whatever, if he doesn't get going now, he'll have wasted the morning. So this is all the kind of chat over breakfast. (laughs) Yeah, the the Anstruthers are just awesome. I mean, they are a classic comedy old married couple. Could be straight out of Jane Austen, like you said, Brandon, but really could be straight out of just about anything. I mean, this is a real trope. James is nailing it, though. And Mrs. Anstruther has a lot to do, and she really does need her husband to help. But all he wants to do is play golf with his friend. But I mean, that's the thing of it is that she really, really does actually have a lot to do, even though the Anstruthers are are clearly wealthy. They don't have jobs in the way that we would think of them, but they are the local gentry. And as the local gentry, Mrs. Anstruther has a big house to manage. And and this also employs several people. This bit about the bazaar that you mentioned, Brandon, that's a, a, a charity fundraiser that she's contributing to, right? She's trying to prepare for this charity fundraiser. Uh, they also need to keep up their relationship with the bishop. Uh, this is their fund- function in the community because of their wealth. And what James is showing us here is that Mrs. Anstruther takes this all very seriously. She might even actually enjoy it, but Mr. Anstruther really just wants to be left alone. He is maybe an introvert and she's an extrovert, might be the way we would think about it. And uh, also, you know, his wife treats him like an employee. <laughs> it's maybe not a good partnership. <laughs> not not a great partnership, but he does, you know, probably play a lot of golf. So, you know, he, he gets out on the links and, and is able to um, just talk about his family life, I suppose, or just hit the balls around. I don't know. Uh, well, George leaves the breakfast room and, you know, Mary takes some time of the morning to look over some letters and then she does some housework, which I think based on what we've seen so far means she manages the housework. 
It doesn't take long for George to find Collins, and the two make their way out to the proposed site of the Rose Garden. And I'm going to quote here how the spot Mary decided upon uh, the site for this Rose Garden is described. Uh, James writes this. It was a small, dank clearing, bounded on one side by a path and on the other by thick box bushes, laurels and other evergreens. The ground was almost bare of grass and dark of aspect. Remains of rustic seats and an old corrugated oak post somewhere near the middle of the clearing had given rise to Mr. Anstruther's conjecture that a summer house had once stood there. So this is not a good spot for roses. And and (laughs) Collins really agrees about this. He tells George that he can clear away the seats and the other stuff, no problem. But the post is going to be much more difficult to move. It's really in there. It's really deep in the ground. And that's going to take some doing. But George makes it clear that Mary wants the post and everything else cleared out within an hour. And Collins is like, I can do everything with the post in an hour. The post I can clear by the afternoon. Plus, uh, I just want to make my point known here. This is a really lousy place for a rose garden. So everybody is on board here that this is not a good place. And George understands that the bushes and stuff are going to block the light. So he tells Collins to get rid of all the bushes and the laurels and Laurentius and all that sort of stuff as well. Collins keeps on trying to make his point about like, Hey, you're not hearing me. This is a lot of work. It's going to be tough to do in an hour. But at this point, George hears the car that's going to take him to town. So he leaves telling Collins that don't worry, I'll tell Mrs. Anstruther what you told me and this should be fine. So that's that. Yeah, Collins the gardener is also really fantastic. One of the things that's going on in this conversation is that he fully recognizes that Mr. Anstruther is also just an employee of Mrs. Anstruther, just like Collins <laughs> the gardener is himself. That the two of them, right, Collins and Mr. Anstruther, I mean, are in the same class, at least as far as this goes. And I, I just want to read this little bit into the microphone, this exchange here, this thing that Collins says. Well, now, it ain't for me to go against orders no more than what it is for you yourself uh, or anyone else. This was added somewhat hurriedly, right? So (laughs) he has to correct himself there because he has to maintain the fiction that he doesn't know that Mr. Anstruther is really not Mr. Anstruther in the sense of being in charge of this house. He's just another employee of his wife, right? I mean, this is about protecting Mr. Anstruther's masculinity and and maybe sense of, of self in some other ways as well. But it's great. Colin sees right through all of this and it's hilarious. Yeah, it's, it's awesome. Well, by four o'clock that afternoon, Mrs. Anstruther finally cuts her husband loose to play golf. And she had dealt with Collins and, you know, understands the situation and finished her other stuff that she was supposed to do with the day. So now she finally has some time to sketch the church. But just as she's getting set up for her sketching, one of her maids comes running out to tell her that Mrs. Wilkins has come a calling. Mary tells the maid to bring Mrs. Wilkins out to her. Mrs. Wilkins is very old, so this is maybe a little inconsiderate, uh, though perhaps not. And Mrs. Wilkins, we're told, is is one of the few remaining members of the family from whom the Anstruthers uh, bought this estate. Mrs. Wilkins is very complimentary of what Mary has done with the place. And Mary tells her that there's even more she plans to do. For instance, she wants to plant a rose garden. And since Mrs. Wilkins is here, hey, they can go visit the site together. 
Visiting the site of the old summer house evokes a memory for Mrs. Wilkins about the time her and her brother Frank lived at the estate as children. She tells Mary of her memories. Being in this place was a little scary when she and her brother were there alone. And in fact, they they avoided it if they were alone. And Glenn, I'm not sure if your sense of alone here was if like their parents or something were out or if they were and they were together or if they were alone as children. It doesn't matter to the plot. To me, it was just unclear how she was narrating that. Yeah, my sense was that she means no adult supervision. She doesn't mean herself by an individual that that she's talking about her and her brother, but also maybe her as an individual as well. But I think it's the no parents around is the big deal here. Yeah, I think that's the I think that is mostly the implication of the text, but uh I just wanted to make sure that we we, we thought roughly the same thing here. Uh, not that it matters too much, but um it was interesting to me to find some confusion there uh, on, on the part of uh, James's writing. But anyway, one day, Frank was playing somewhere, and she didn't know where he was, but she wanted to find him because it's time for tea. So Mrs. Wilkins, you know, the girl Mrs. Wilkins, uh, finds him sitting on a bench by the summer house in a sort of dreadful, trance-like state. She ran over to him and tries to wake him. But he screams uh, when she's finally able to kind of shake him out of this trance. They run back to the house together. And for some reason, he wouldn't talk about his experience. But eventually he does. And it came out that he had had some sort of dream. And in this dream, he didn't see anything. Rather, he was experiencing all the other senses and sensations that seemed to more than compensate for the loss of sight. Frank was in the presence of some very powerful people, and he was being forced to answer questions, questions about his whereabouts on October 19th and about whether or not the handwriting was his. And this is a trial of some kind. And after the sensations of being on trial, Frank felt restless and miserable. And then he was being led through the snow to a platform really to be hanged. And just before he was about to be hanged in the dream, Mrs. Wilkins, the girl, snapped him out of it. Thank God, because who knows what would have happened to him if she did not. A year later, uh, Mrs. Wilkins is still telling this to Mrs. Anstruther. A year later, uh, Mrs. Wilkins was reading out by the old summer house, and she began to hear whispers and murmurs. And the only words she could distinguish were, pull, pull. I'll push, you pull. And this frightens her, naturally. So she prowls around the grounds trying to hear where these sounds are coming from. And it sounded to her as though they were coming from the post. Like she put her ear up to the post and heard these sounds. So she does a kind of irrational thing. She takes out her scissors and scores the post with them. And hey, here are the score marks now. So she's telling this to Mrs. Anstruther and then shows her, hey, these marks are still here. So we're back in the present. And this is all very strange, right? Her father also had some strange experiences, too. And one of the men who did odd jobs about the place told her father that no matter what, they should not remove the post because, hey, maybe it's keeping someone in. <laughs> but <laughs> Mrs. Wilkins was never able to learn more about what was going on with the post and the summer house because her parents died and weren't able to tell her anything more about it. 
anyway, it's time for Mrs. Wilkins to continue along with her day. So she exits stage right. <laughs> right, Brandon. You have inferred that the uh, the folk wisdom is that someone is buried there, but the 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 actual thing that is said here is, don't you fear for that, sir. He's fast enough in there without no one. Don't take and let him out, but without any context, right? So, like we, the audience, we reading this can parse that out. But this is something that I think it's pretty clear that that Miss Wilkins did not really pay all that much heed to this, nor did her father or anyone else in their family when they heard this. That they're uh, as the upper class being perhaps a little bit obtuse about the folk wisdom of the lower class here, which maybe also is what's going on with the Anstruthers and, and Collins. And uh, that's a theme perhaps that we will uh, return to here at the end. I do also just want to say you've, you've been calling her Mrs. Wilkins, Brandon, but it is Miss Wilkins that may actually matter in the discussion a little bit, which is the only reason I, I pointed out, because it seems to be to, to me that the implication of this is that neither she nor Frank ever grew up and had any children of their own. And that's why the house has been sold to the Anstruthers in the first place. And I think that uh, this change changeover from the Wilkins to the Anstruthers is uh, something, uh, James is doing something with that. So then we're going to talk about that in the discussion. So I bring it up here just to, uh, just so that we're, we're thinking about it as we continue on. But this this story within the story here is pretty awesome. I mean, Miss Wilkins drops by because she wants to look at her old house one last time. She sees the garden, then launches into a story about how it's totally haunted and everyone should get out, <laughs> right? But then she just says, okay, bye now. And all of this really subverts it's one of the tropes that I think we consider to be pretty classic in ghost stories, which is the new owners of the house discovering that something is wrong and then having for themselves to discover the haunted backstory. But here, it is not the new owners who experience the ghost and have to go investigating. It's that the previous owner drops by to let them know about the backstory before they've even experienced anything, which is just totally crazy. It is crazy. And it's a great catch on, on the Miss Wilkins bit. I had uh, misread that. Yeah, it's it's a strange structural choice, a strange style choice, maybe in this uh, story to have Miss Wilkins just drop by and then she she's never seen again. I mean, this is the kind of stuff R.L. Stein does in Goosebumps. It's like <laughs> have, have like two kids show up like neighbors to dump some exposition and then they disappear right. halfway through the book. <laughs> Well, I don't think it works very well uh, in the end. I don't think that this is the quite as satisfying as the, you know, I think there's a reason the trope is the trope and this is not the trope, right? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I couldn't, I couldn't agree with you more about that, uh, though. I mean, maybe one day I'll reread a Goosebumps novel. That would be a fun, uh, that'd be a <laughs> oh, fun we, push goal perhaps for Oh Patreon. yes, I would love for us to do some Goosebumps <laughs> here on the, on the podcast if people are into that. Yeah, that would be, that would be a lot of fun. Well, by, by later that evening, uh, Collins had gotten everything cleared away, including the post, but George came down with a bit of a chill playing golf. So Mrs. Anstruther has some brandy brought up to him. They go to bed, and the next morning, Mary tells George about some concerns that she has about the property. She thinks some rough characters had gotten into the plantation overnight, and she heard owls hooting like way too much, and Collins should really do something about that. But George didn't hear anything. He was instead having nightmares. And Mary really just wants George to like dish on what he's dreamed about. And George wants Mary to want him to tell him what he's dreamed about. The nightmare, you see, wasn't like your typical nightmare. George was in some kind of old fashioned place and 
Papers were being burnt and there was lots of anxiety to go around. A servant told him that the horse was ready. Then the next thing he knew, he was in a room answering questions about where he was and his handwriting and stuff. And it's essentially exactly as Miss Wilkins described Frank's dream as being. The people holding the trial in this nightmare were accusing George of some seriously awful stuff, the sort of stuff that Mrs. Anstruther thinks men talk about on the links. She's like, don't make me blush. She doesn't want to hear any talk like that in her home. Um, so George kind of elides all of this, what I would think is crucial data about understanding what is going on with this, uh, ghost (laughs) story here. But after the trial, he, uh, waits for a while. Then he's led out in the cold to a platform where he was to be executed. And now we get a little more detail here for high treason. Then the dream passed. So George didn't die in the dream, but boy, he could really use a game of golf because nothing cures a case of the heebie-jeebies like being out on the links with the boys and he has a good excuse now mary can't tell him no and mary's okay with it because she has a lot to do including finishing her sketch of the church there's some really crazy stuff going on in this story i mean mrs anstruther's explanation for how her husband had the same dream that miss wilkins's brother had decades and decades ago and which she just told us yesterday right this explanation is hilarious that she she thinks that the owl woke her up in the night which of course is not actually an owl right <laughs> you know we know that i think uh but she thinks that the owl woke her up she was scared and that maybe she at that point thought of this scary story that she just heard and that somehow because she was thinking about it, that same story got into her husband's dream. And for her, that is just a simple, rational explanation, (laughs) which is awesome, right? Yeah, the psychic transference stuff is hilarious. I mean, I'm glad you brought it up. It doesn't really play a role in the larger plot, but it is placed in here in uh, the most absurd way where she's like, hey, We both know that psychic transference is a real thing that happens. And because I was thinking about this, you had nightmares where that's not even like an Occam's razor explanation. I mean, the most reasonable (laughs) explanation is, hey, we've destroyed this post or taken it out of the ground. Maybe there are ghosts. Right. The ghost is actually the more rational explanation than (laughs) psychic transference. (laughs) Well, before rolling out to the golf course, uh, Mr. Anstruther strolls around his property to check to see if there's been any like vandalism or any evidence that these rough characters have been horsing around on his uh, property last night. And there is no evidence of that. But Collins has called in sick and he feels really bad. Not like sick, but like he's done something wrong in clearing away that Rose Garden site, especially in removing that post. And people, he's heard talk about how that's a bad idea, but The text here just kind of says, like, this can all be chalked up to nonsense. Right. Yeah. Collins, the gardener, is not really sick. We need to emphasize that. He's he's just heard the ghost story from some of the older people in the village, and he doesn't want to mess around with the garden anymore. So he's, you know, he's malingering. He's pretending to be sick. Yeah. He has his wife call in. uh, And I I guess Colin may not be exactly what's going on, but he has his wife, you know, write with a shaky hand or something. Oh, cough, cough. You know, (laughs) my husband can't come in. I I don't know exactly how this works. Uh, (laughs) Uh, 
But anyway, Mrs. Anstruther now eventually makes her way out to the place where she is drawing the church. This is like her business in the text is this. This is what gets her out of the house. She's sketching this church. Uh, But the light got bad for her. You know, because she's been out there for a while to execute her consistent vision and perspective. So she decides now it's time to pack up. And on her way back to the house, she hears some rustling in one of the bushes and turns and sees what she thinks is, Glenn, correct me if I'm wrong here, but a guy fox mask uh, peeping out from the bushes. But it's not a mask. It's a real face. And it stares at her for a little while, then recedes into the darkness. And this freaks out Mrs. Anstruther. So she runs back to the house and collapses. Yeah, absolutely. It's a it's a Guy Fawkes mask, though here James calls it a, a 5th of November mask. And, you know, I don't know that we need to say a whole lot about Guy Fawkes because, you know, most of us have read or seen or both V for Vendetta. Right. <laughs> right. <laughs> but uh, yeah, Guy Fawkes, uh, 17th century Yorkshireman, uh, Catholic, who's... Uh, arrested and and executed for plotting to blow up parliament with uh, barrels of gunpowder it's called the gunpowder plot uh, the gunpowder treason and plot i suppose and uh that the, the day of his execution is still celebrated in england uh as bonfire night and you know it, it is early november it's the 5th of november and it's kind of merged into uh halloween a little bit there i loved bonfire night uh, you know i've lived in england for two bonfire nights and it's uh, it is a fun holiday even if it's uh remembering commemorating something that's uh unseemly you know the state executing somebody uh and uh something that strikes us a little strange i think as as americans to have a holiday like that but it's it's a ton of fun and this is i mean we're very near the end of the story here but this is the first hint that hey we should be thinking about the 17th century and the politics of the reformation in england because it turns out that's what the whole story's been about the whole time Yeah, it it does turn out that that's the case. So we are close to the end here. Mr. and Mrs. Anstruther, uh, I suppose in the intervening time that, you know, in a text can take up to a sentence, but uh, in real time as they live through it is taken some weeks, but they've become interested in the history of the property. This is my understanding of what's going on. And they start looking into it and eventually they receive a portrait or maybe a picture of a portrait of the Lord Chief Justice under Charles II, who died after his disgrace in Westfield and was buried by the church parish, the church near the Anstruthers' home. And his grave was marked with a stake. Here I'm quoting from what James is quoting from, some historical descriptive document about this burial. Uh, the stake is in a field adjoining to the Church of Westfield on the west side. So that's exactly where the Rose Garden is. That's exactly where this oak post was. And the enclosed photograph of the man sends Mrs. Anstruther into shock so badly that she has to winter abroad. And I don't know, Glenn, here, if we're meant to understand that this is Guy Fawkes or uh, there's some resemblance between the Chief Justice or Guy Fawkes or, which I think is likely the case, that what she thinks of as Guy Fawkes when she looks closer doesn't actually bear any resemblance to him. It is just this, this Chief Justice. But Mr. Anstruther, in making arrangements for his wife's travel, ran into the local rector and tells his story about the haunting. And and the rector adds a fresh perspective on this story. Uh, He goes on to talk about 
this recent haunting on the grounds and he's, I guess, dug around in the church records. And the rector says, yes, it was bad at first. They had the sound of owls and they could hear men talking, but all of this has died down now. All they have to go on, though, about what's gone on with this burial is the burial record of this chief justice and a Latin quote in the record that the rector took to be the family motto. But he realized that the phrase was actually added much later, this note on the record in the 17th century. It says, quieta non movera, which in my end notes translates as don't disturb quiet things. And then my end notes also idiomatically translate this into let sleeping dogs lie. And that's basically the end of the story. Right. Yeah. Let sleeping dogs lie or, you know, sleeping ghosts lie is the the, the point of that that entry. Yeah. So let, let me address a few things that you, you said there before I, I bring us into the discussion. So I think the business with saying she saw what looked to be a Guy Fawkes mask is actually just to say that she saw someone in the dress and uh, hairstyle of the 17th century. I think that's all that's really yes, saying that, yes. that that in the popular imagination, if you saw someone who looks like the 17th century or that, that you would just think, oh, that's, that's Guy Fawkes, even though actually, you know, nothing about the particulars of the face look like Guy Fawkes. We would do this with Shakespeare as well, right? Like I think, you know, the, the mildly educated person, if you held up a, a, a drawing, a, a painting of, you know, Francis Bacon and said, who is this? They would say Shakespeare. And, you know, they wouldn't totally be wrong, I suppose, you know, according to some people, I guess, but uh, you catch my meaning. <laughs> here. Uh, so that's one thing. And then I also just want to clarify, you know, you said that James is quoting here. James is using an excerpt from uh, a text in this in this letter, but all of this is stuff that he's made up. He's not quoting something that exists in the yes, real world. That's right. mm-hmm. uh, Westfield is not a real location. None of this is real. The Chief Justice William Scroggs is real, but he also didn't actually die here. He died in London and so on. So James has made all of that up. And really, I have to say, this is a pretty anticlimactic, maybe even puzzling end to the story. I suspect that this ending would have made more sense and also then landed a stronger punch with James's original audience at Cambridge. But in 21st century America, this needs a bit more teasing out what's what's happening here. So the deal is this. In 1678, an Anglican priest named Titus Oates publicly claimed that there was a popish plot to kill King Charles II and put a Catholic king on the, the throne. And so they're, you know, in some thematic way, they're connected to, to Guy Fawkes. And the thing is, of course, though, that this charge was totally made up, but for three years, there were a number of investigations, and Oates became very, very specific in his charges, and lots of people were tried and executed. And in particular, the Chief Justice William Scroggs was a rabid hater of Catholics, and so he violated the due process rights of many of the accused during their trials and, and had them executed with, uh, I think, what I would describe as a maniacal glee. And that is who's buried here in this Rose Garden. It's William Scroggs, who uh, retired to Essex after he was dismissed in shame following these events, though then later died in, in London. Um, and I should say he was dismissed in shame following these events when it became clear that there was not and never had been any popish plot and that he'd killed over 20 innocent people and enjoyed it, right? And we are meant to understand that after he died, his ghost was haunting the area. And so his body was dug up and moved and then reburied with this stake through it, what what everyone's been calling a post, but is really a stake. And that stake keeps the ghost at bay. But now the ghost is loose again, but the local rector is not actually worried about it. He says, it'll probably just go away on its own. So 
anticlimactic and puzzling. Yeah, this this bit at the end was another section of writing that I found pretty confusing uh, as a reader, just because it's an introduction of a new character that we've not interacted with before, who's talking about the events of the story in a way that Mr. Anstruther should have been doing. Like we just got two paragraphs about how they're looking into this and doing some investigative work. And then the perspective shifts and it's the rector telling us this kind of end business of the story. And I was like, in my head, I had to read over this again because the first time I read it, I was like, well, Mr. Anstruther has just dug this up from the church record but no, it's the rector. And so it's a very strange perspective shift and character agency shift here at the end that led me to feeling confused about, uh, you know, this text ultimately. Yeah, it's not narrated very clearly. The The perspective shift is is jarring. Some of the narrative is jarring as well. And then it relies on this really esoteric knowledge to, to land any kind of punch. So yeah, on the whole, I thought this was a much, much slighter story and just much less effective story than Lost Hearts, which has actually remained one of my favorite things that we've done on the, on the show. And, uh, you know, I do know that we also just said the same thing about In the Court of the Dragon, that it was slighter than the other Chambers yeah, stories yeah, we've yeah. done. But I, I will say, I'll promise listeners, we do have a pretty great Arthur Mackin story coming up next time. So I don't think this is going to become a refrain. Like we've not entered some sort of, you know, doldrums here on the, the show for a few weeks. But uh, uh, really all of that is just to say that I don't have a lot of questions for the discussion on this story. I, I mostly just want to talk about the metaphysics of the, the ghost here, right? The, the rules for ghosts in this story. And, and then also the interplay of of history and cultural memory that's going on in the, the backdrop here. But let's, let's start with the ghostly metaphysics. And I don't know, Brandon, if you're able to you know, make any uh, any scientific claims about this, but you know, what are the powers that we actually see the ghost of William Scroggs have in this story? He can make the sounds of an owl at yeah. night, I suppose. <laughs> right. He can he can uh, give people nightmares from the perspective, perhaps, of one who he is gleefully executing, um, and he can make whisper sounds in the. Uh, if people are close to his post. And then once he's loose, he can hide in bushes and frighten old women. Uh, but though that's really, that's really kind of the, the key things that I saw as his powers in this story. The trance thing is, is pretty horrifying. I mean, the, the way that those trances and nightmares are communicated to us is unpleasant. It would be a terrifying experience to be in a trance where you experience death um, without sight uh, without knowing what's going on that does sound pretty horrifying and chaotic but the owl sounds and like the the uh, shaking of bushes around the property that that's not that's not too bad it's not it's not the old classic uh you know rattling of chains and blood stains on the carpet you know <laughs> well that's a great point there that the the scariest thing that happens in this story happens in the story within the story that's narrated as the you know in the second act really, that we don't build to the scariest thing. We start with the scariest thing and it doesn't actually even happen to anyone directly in our story. It doesn't happen to the Anstruthers. So I think that's where, you know, just thinking about the, the rules of ghost stories, let alone the rules of ghosts, it just doesn't work 
very well, right? That these these tropes are tropes for a reason, which is that they they work, and this doesn't work very well there. And this is a pretty low powered ghost, right? That's that's what we're saying. I mean, you know, he does have the power to give these nightmares, apparently, or he might not even be a power. It might just be a side effect. There's no sense necessarily that the ghost has any agency over this, or that the ghost even really has much agency at all. I guess it does do some talking, so maybe he does have some agency, but the full force of that seems to only happen when you're right next to the post. So like Mr. Anstruther doesn't get this as strongly as the little boy uh, Frank does because he's right next to the post, but because Mr. Anstruther has been near the post, but then you know left, went back to his house and went to bed and hours have passed. You know, it's just a bad dream, not maybe all that different from the, you know, weird zombie dream uh, I had last night. <laughs> you know, like, right. it's a, you know, this is, a, you know, a thing that happens to us. So it doesn't really seem all that powerful. And even the rector is just like, it'll probably go away. So my follow-up question then is, what is the stake for? What does the stake do? Because the worst thing the ghost seems to be able to do, it can still do, even when it's staked down. I don't know. Uh, I don't know. (laughs) (laughs) Right. (laughs) I I mean, it's just there. Uh, It's, I guess the stake business is really more caught up with the actions of the parish and i was confused then i was wondering whether or not this church the church parish who maybe was the parish of uh the the chief justices here maybe it was his home parish or something like that whether they were doing something evil or good um i'm not really sure of their actions but they were the ones the people of this church community took it upon themselves to bury this man here in this field. Right. My sense of this is that where he was originally buried, his ghost was being some kind of problem. We don't ever get that story, but I think that would be a pretty awesome ghost story. Like James has some awesome ghost story in the background of this that we don't actually get here. That's probably much scarier than what we actually get (laughs) narrated here. But yeah, so that's my sense is that he's buried uh, in Essex and uh, then is haunting that locale and people are disturbed by it. And so they move his body to Westfield and bury it a pretty good distance from the church, just in this field where there is nothing. And it is not actually a consecrated cemetery. And they stake him down so that his ghost won't bother people, right? So I think that's the thing that the stake does, is that it does keep his ghost from wandering around. And I guess maybe that, you know, if if that understanding, if my interpretation of the history here is correct, then I, I guess what that suggests is that his ghost was once powerful, but that his powers have dissipated in the last you know, two and a half centuries. Yeah. I mean, this is, this is like some haunted painting Ghostbusters two stuff. It's <laughs> what we're dealing with. I, I, you know, I just don't know the, the logic of this story doesn't work. You think you'd want to bury this person on consecrated ground and stake him down. Uh, I mean, this kind of trope is already present in, in, in you know in ghost stories at this time you, you'd want him on the church grounds the fact that the parish buried him or felt responsibility for his spirit in some way or his body but then didn't bury him on the church grounds that i don't know if that was a sense of shame or he you know they didn't want him on the consecrated ground there's a lot of what i'm i guess what i'm saying is there's just a lot of confusion around just what 
And I think this is what you're driving at, just what the rules of the story are, um, because it is the church who chooses to move his body and the local community takes responsibility for it, um, but they don't put it on the consecrated ground. Uh, so there's just a, a lot of what is actually happening here. You know, what is this story about or driving at that uh, doesn't necessarily have anything to do with the the ghost. I mean, the Rose Garden doesn't even ever get planted, which is strange. It's a strange title for the story. There's a lot of strangeness with this one. Right. I mean, I suppose he could have called it the post, but then people would have thought it was about like mail delivery or something, <laughs> I, I, I guess. Well, ultimately, so I want to move into the, the next thing on the outline here and, you know, we'll, we'll be done with this episode pretty quickly, I, I guess, today. Uh, but this is a story about how some foolish newcomers let a ghost out of its grave because they didn't know what this post is for. They didn't know it was a stake holding a ghost, you know, under under the ground. So the question I've got for you, Brandon, is the, the, the problem in this story, social mobility, is the problem that there is a lack of social and economic stability that keeps people in the communities and stations of their birth? Is that why this ghost is let out? Uh, I don't know if that argument is clearly articulated in the text. You you hinted at some stuff about, you know, the Wilkins family, how the, the, the Wilkins children became orphans and maybe there was nobody to uh, inherit the property and they couldn't maintain it on whatever estate money they had from their parents' death. All of the local knowledge is kind of kept in the realm of the lower classes, uh, the working classes. But I don't think that this... The consequences of letting the ghost loose, you know, which would be the conclusion of the argument, if we're talking about this, you know, in the kind of literary argument for the purpose of the story, uh, I don't think the consequences of letting the ghost ghost loose are strong enough to make any kind of statement about class mobility or uh, folk knowledge or folklore or these country communities that have their own urban legends, suburban legends, perhaps country <laughs> legends, uh, you know, the church history, all this stuff. It just doesn't, to me, doesn't amount to an argument for a progressive idea like social mobility, you know, in, in the 19th century. Yeah, I, I agree because it, it it's totally muddled. Because if you were going to say that you know social mobility is the problem and and you know progressivism is the problem and we need to have merry old England and you know the gentry needs to stay the gentry and they need to stay where they are and you know they they should be having kids and passing their houses down to their kids and so on so that you know newcomers don't get the house and you know accidentally pull up all the ghosts right that that's a great story we we will someday encounter exactly that message perhaps actually in another M R James story. But if not, then in someone else writing in you know the 19th century as part of the, the Gothic tradition, for sure. But that isn't what's happening here because it's not that the local people actually know anything about this either, right? We get this note that, that Collins the gardener, who is a local and, and also doesn't know the story about this ghost, Collins has to find out about this only because he actually talks to people in the village who are old, right? It's not the local people who know something. I mean, they are local, but it's not that's not the thing that sets them apart. It's that they're old. So the old people, you know, I think we're thinking people in their, their 60s and 70s here, they do know the story of Scroggs. They know that there's a ghost out there in Westfield, or at least they've heard that story, whether or not they actually like know that and believe it or not. But they haven't bothered to pass that knowledge on to any other 
of the you know the locals, the generations. Otherwise, Collins would already know this, right? And also, it was the local clerics who staked the body down. But they also don't have a tradition. Like, there's nothing in the records that you know is like passed this from one rector to another, so that you know the current rector always will know to keep an eye on this stake. And uh, you know that's a story that would have been really awesome, right? Where the the rector knows about this and he realizes that the Anstruthers are going to try to dig this up, and he's trying to get them not to without telling them this ghost story because no one's going to believe a ghost story, right? You know, I don't know. That could actually even be a pretty hilarious ghost story, you know, sort of a Shakespearean comedy of errors or something there as well. But yeah, we don't get anything like that either. So yeah, it's hard for me to find a real coherent uh, bad guy really in this story about sort of like how, why and how the ghost gets out. Also, as you pointed out, there's nothing bad that happens because of it. So who cares? Yeah, who cares? <laughs> <laughs> so, so I think some uh, some although I so as I said at the top of the show, I really really enjoyed reading this. I mean, the language and the cadence is all beautiful. And it's also a lot of fun to get on the microphone and joke around about tropes. But I think there are some craft lessons that we can take from this from this story. Uh, the biggest one probably is hey, have some stakes, have some consequences to the actions of your characters. Yeah, that that's one lesson to learn. Um, they, I mean, James's characterization here of the Anstruthers is great. I mean, we know exactly what this marriage is like, what the relationship is like. Um, it's delightful to read. It's well realized in the text. Um, we might even say there's something like a codependent couple, the way that George <laughs> is trying to get Mrs. Anstruther or Mary to uh, make him tell him the nightmare. I mean, they just they have a really well-defined relationship just within the 10 pages of text. So that that's a real strength. But another thing is, is don't make the most horrifying thing happen to a character we don't care about. And then immediately lower the stakes after that. So like George's nightmare should have been something way worse than, oh yeah, Frank's fear of dying in the dream doesn't actually happen. So it's totally fine. We, we can disregard that last spooky bit of ghost story and then lower the stakes further by just having Mrs. Anstruther see a face in the bushes and being scared. Um, so it's, and, and then the consequence of that is that she's never going to build the rose garden. So then what we're primed to think about in this story, what is Mrs. Anstruther's character motivation is cut off at the knees. So she never builds the rose garden. We don't really see her finishing the sketch on the church. The bizarre never happens. Like all these things that are like, what is this character doing? Um, all the business of the character never conclude in any way. So like if you're giving your character business, make sure they, they accomplish one thing, at least, you know, you can't just pack a character full of wants and desires and then never have them met. That is unsatisfying. I think to a reader. Right. I mean, I think you, you've hit the nail on the head there in saying that Act 3 doesn't complete, it doesn't fulfill the promise of Act 1 at all. And, you know, if we had some information about the composition of this to do some some crit fic here, you know, it might just be that James got started on this story, maybe right as a semester was starting, then, you know, got busy during the semester and finished it over the winter break, uh, just in time for it to, you know, to read it out loud at a Christmas party, at a Cambridge Christmas party, and it just kind of forgotten what he was doing. And so that's where it feels <laughs> like the end of the story is not really the same as the beginning of the story. It's not the same story, right? 
And, and I mean, that was the the tradition, right? James would read these stories out to his colleagues and, and students, you know, at a Cambridge Christmas party or something like that. And it's just for fun for us to sit here and uh, be able to have the text of it and kind of pour over it and uh, make light of it in some ways, but also, you know, address its strengths. Uh, that's not what this story was. This was 20 minutes of an evening where you were (laughs) drinking probably heavily and sitting by a cozy fire. Uh, And and that's kind of the, the way I think that these stories are meant to be encountered. So I I don't think we're being unfair to it um, by reading it and encountering it the way we're doing it. But also we're not taking it strictly in the spirit of what, which it was given to an audience, uh, which is, absolutely something to keep in mind as, as we do these MR James stories. Uh, and, and we'll have more to do, but that's going to do it for this episode. I'm Brandon Buddha. And I'm Glenn McDorman. You can find us and our other creative projects at claytemplemedia.com. And if you would like to support the network and get access to all our bonus episodes, there's a lot of them now, including our MR James Christmas episode. And also you get to have your say in what we cover. Uh, please join us on Patreon at patreon.com slash claytemplemedia. Head on over to the Clay Temple forums or our subreddit and let us know what you thought of our coverage of the Rose Garden. What lessons did you learn perhaps as a, as a writer uh, from reading a story like this? And what did you enjoy about this story? We, we always like to focus on what we enjoyed. <laughs> Yes, absolutely. It's actually much more fun than complaining about a story. And as to be clear, this story was a lot of fun. It just didn't make a lot of sense. It didn't land at the end. But uh, circling us around now, we don't want to do that. So let's look ahead. Uh, next time, we're going to be back with the first of two episodes on the Arthur Mackin novella, The Inmost Light, which is, uh, I, I think, a pretty awesome story. And I'm looking forward to doing that one. But until then, we greet you and say farewell. <laughs>